Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. This is the question breakdown for the vascular surgery chapter. A 75-year-old man with an extensive 90-pack-year history of tobacco use, hyperlipidemia, and a coronary artery bypass grafting, cabbage, three years ago sees his physician for abdominal pain. The pain started three months ago and is described as agonizing, constant, and diffuse. It occurs regularly about an hour after meals and lasts up to two hours. Antacids or positional changes do not relieve the pain. He has lost 6.8 kilograms, 15 pounds, and his appetite is markedly decreased. Vital signs are normal. On physical examination, he appears tired but is not pale or jaundiced. His abdomen is soft, non-tender, and without palpable masses. Which of the following tests is most likely to lead to the correct diagnosis? Is it A, abdominal CT? without intravenous contrast, B, arteriography, C, barium swallow study, D, flexible sigmoidoscopy, or E, upper endoscopy. So let's get back into this vignette and look at some real key points here. So first is the age of the patient. He's 75 years old, so a little bit on the older side. Very extensive tobacco smoking history of 90 pack years. He has coronary artery disease and had bypass grafting. And then he's presenting with this abdominal pain. And we're given very specific information about the nature of this pain. Agonizing, constant, diffuse, and really most importantly, postprandial. So the question writers really spent time describing the pain. And so that is something that I would very definitely suggest you key in on. Next thing, antacids do not make this better. So that makes something like dyspepsia, gastritis, GERD less likely. Positional changes don't relieve the pain, but he has had weight loss and his appetite is decreased. So as I think about this question, the first thing that I would be trying to think about is what is the most likely diagnosis in this patient? Because then we can work from there to decide what the most appropriate study is. So I'm thinking mesenteric ischemia, given his known coronary disease, atherosclerotic risk factors. He's got hyperlipidemia. He's a smoker. We know he has coronary disease. And then the nature of that pain and, and the fact that he has postprandial pain. So I'm thinking mesenteric ischemia. So the pain in mesenteric ischemia results from the gut's inability to meet the increased oxygen demand required following meals because of stenotic mesenteric arteries. 
and arteriography is the gold standard for diagnosing stenosis of the mesenteric arteries. So I would be zeroing in right away on choice B, which is arteriography. But let's take a look at the other choices here. So choice A is abdominal CT without IV contrast. So non-contrast CT scans are excellent for more gross intra-abdominal pathology, but its lower image resolution makes it less sensitive and specific when compared with angiography or arteriography. While a non-contrast CT scan is extremely useful to rule out many potential causes of this patient's symptoms, his clinical picture is really strongly suggestive of chronic mesenteric ischemia, and a non-contrast study wouldn't be able to identify this particular diagnosis. Looking at choice C, which is barium swallow study. So a barium swallow study is a non-invasive means to look for esophageal abnormalities. can be helpful in working up things like dysphagia but really wouldn't be helpful in, in trying to identify a diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia. Choice D is flexible sigmoidoscopy. So colorectal cancer often presents with weight loss and heme-positive stools. Postprandial pain is an uncommon complaint in colorectal cancer, so I would not be looking at anything like sigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy. And then choice E is upper endoscopy. So an upper endoscopy can help reveal things like peptic ulcer disease. Peptic ulcers result in dyspepsia and can improve with antacids, which was not the case for this patient. Duodenal ulcers typically present with burning postprandial epigastric pain. The pain of peptic ulcer disease can fluctuate from week to week, as opposed to the very predictable, progressive, severe pain as described in this case that we see in mesenteric ischemia. So the correct answer choice here is B, arteriography. And the learning point in this question is that chronic mesenteric ischemia is a form of peripheral arterial disease that restricts blood flow to the gut. This causes gut ischemia and pain when gut oxygen demand increases during digestion. Patients typically complain of diffuse postprandial abdominal pain with subsequent weight loss due to food aversion. Arteriography or angiography of the mesenteric arteries shows stenosis of those mesenteric arteries. And with that, we'll get back to our show. This is the vascular surgery chapter from USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Question 1. What clues suggest carotid stenosis? How is it diagnosed? The classic presentation of carotid stenosis is a transient ischemic attack, or TIA, especially amaurosis fugax which is a sudden onset of transient unilateral blindness, sometimes described as a shade pulled over one eye. Physical exam may reveal a carotid bruit. Ultrasound of the carotid arteries is used to diagnose and quantify the degree of stenosis. Question 2. How is carotid stenosis managed? In symptomatic patients, if the stenosis is 70 to 99%, Patients usually are advised to undergo carotid endarterectomy for the best long-term prognosis, if their state of health allows them to tolerate the surgery. If stenosis is 50 to 69%, the data is less clear and patient factors affect the decision. Carotid endarterectomy is generally recommended for men, patients ages 75 or older, patients with recent stroke but not TIA, and patients with hemispheric symptoms other than transient monocular blindness. Female patients, 
Patients younger than 75 years and those with mild symptoms generally do better with medical management if stenosis is 50 to 69%. If stenosis is less than 50%, medical management is indicated. Patients should not undergo carotid endarterectomy after a stroke that leaves them severely disabled, but small, non-disabling strokes are not a contraindication to surgery. Carotid endarterectomy should not be performed during a TIA or stroke in evolution. Surgery is always done electively, not on an emergent basis. In asymptomatic patients, if the stenosis is 60 to 99%, carotid endarterectomy is indicated. If stenosis is less than 60%, medical management is indicated. Medical management includes antihypertensive agents, statins, and antiplatelet therapy. The role of carotid angioplasty and carotid stenting in carotid stenosis is not yet clearly defined. Carotid endarterectomy remains the treatment of choice for suitable carotid stenosis. Because medical therapy has improved since the initial studies comparing carotid endarterectomy with medical management were performed, medical management of lower-grade carotid stenosis and asymptomatic carotid stenosis is gaining favor. This is an area that is still being clarified in the medical literature and likely won't be tested on the USMLE. Question 3. What is the most common cause of death during vascular surgery? Myocardial infarction, regardless of the procedure performed. Peripheral vascular and aortic disease are generalized markers for atherosclerosis, and almost all patients have significant coronary artery disease. Always evaluate patients for modifiable and treatable atherosclerosis risk factors, such as cholesterol, hypertension, smoking, and diabetes. Question 4. What are the classic findings in a patient with an abdominal aortic aneurysm? How is it evaluated? Abdominal aortic aneurysm classically presents as a pulsatile abdominal mass that may cause abdominal pain or back pain. If pain is present, Rupture or leak of the aneurysm should be suspected, although an unruptured aneurysm may cause some degree of pain. Ultrasound or CT scan is used for initial evaluation and diagnostic confirmation in stable patients, as well as for serial monitoring. Question 5. How is an abdominal aortic aneurysm managed? What clues indicate that the aneurysm has ruptured? If the aneurysm is smaller than 5 centimeters, you can follow it with serial ultrasound examinations to ensure that it is not enlarging. These smaller aneurysms should be managed with risk factor reduction, such as smoking cessation and treatment of hypertension and dyslipidemia. If the aneurysm is larger than 5 centimeters, or if you are told that it is enlarging rapidly, surgical correction should be advised if the patient can tolerate the surgery. A pulsatile abdominal mass plus hypotension requires emergent laparotomy for a presumed ruptured aneurysm, which carries a mortality rate of roughly 90%. The management of an abdominal aortic aneurysm dissection depends upon the location of the dissection. Patients who survive the initial tear typically present with a severe sharp or tearing sensation in the chest or back. Acute dissections involving the ascending aorta are considered surgical emergencies. Dissections confined to the descending aorta are treated medically unless the dissection progresses or continues to bleed. Question 6. Define Lerich syndrome. For what is it a marker? 
Lareach syndrome is the combination of claudication in the buttocks, buttock atrophy, and impotence in men due to aortoiliac occlusive disease. Most patients need an aortoiliac bypass graft. Question 7. Define claudication. What are the associated physical findings? Claudication is pain, usually in the lower extremity, brought on by exercise and relieved by rest. It occurs with severe atherosclerotic disease and is the equivalent of angina for the extremities. Associated physical findings include cyanosis with dependent ruber, atrophic changes such as thickened nails, loss of hair, and shiny skin, decreased temperature, and decreased or absent distal pulses. Question 8. How are patients with claudication managed? The best treatment is conservative. Cessation of smoking, exercise, and good control of cholesterol, diabetes, and hypertension. Antiplatelet agents are warranted in patients with claudication. Aspirin is preferred, but clopidogrel may be used for patients who cannot tolerate aspirin. Silostazol may be used for the treatment of intermittent claudication. Beta blockers may worsen claudication as a result of beta-2 receptor blockade, but benefits may outweigh the risks in some patients, such as prior myocardial infarction. If claudication progresses to rest pain, which is forefoot pain, generally at night, which is classically relieved by hanging the foot over the edge of the bed, or if it interferes with lifestyle or work obligations, perform an arterial duplex for diagnosis and use angioplasty or surgical revascularization for treatment. Because claudication and peripheral vascular disease are generalized markers for atherosclerosis, check for other atherosclerosis risk factors. Question 9. What is the probable cause of severe, sudden onset of foot pain in patients with no previous history of foot pain, trauma, or associated chronic physical findings? This scenario may indicate an embolus. Look for atrial fibrillation. The pulse may be absent in the affected area. Or also look for compartment syndrome, which is common after revascularization procedures. Question 10. Describe the classic presentation of aortic dissection. The classic presentation is a tearing or ripping pain in the chest or back. Always think of aortic dissection if a patient presents with chest pain and focal neurologic deficit. On physical exam, look for a systolic blood pressure difference of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury in the upper extremities, hypertension, and acute aortic regurgitation on exam, a diastolic heart murmur. Look for a widened mediastinum on x-ray, which is only present in 63% of cases, or an isolated new pleural effusion. Diagnose with CT angiogram. Risk factors include smoking, hypertension, drug use, and connective tissue disorders. There are two types of dissection, type A, which involves the ascending aorta, and type B, which involves the descending aorta. Generally, type A is treated with surgery and type B is treated with medical management. Medical treatment includes blood pressure control and heart rate control. Question 11. Describe the classic presentation of chronic mesenteric ischemia. The classic patient has a long history of postprandial abdominal pain, also known as intestinal angina. Eating is exercise for the intestines. 
This causes fear of food and extensive weight loss. This diagnosis is difficult because, like all atherosclerotic disease, it presents in patients over 40 who have other conditions that may cause the same problem, such as peptic ulcer disease, pancreatic cancer, or stomach cancer. Look for a history of extensive atherosclerosis, such as known coronary artery disease, peripheral vascular disease, stroke, or multiple risk factors. And also look for abdominal brewery, hemocult positive stool, and lack of jaundice. Jaundice can be more suggestive of pancreatic cancer. Most patients get a CT scan of the abdomen. Negative results raise the suspicion of ischemia. Diagnosis can be made with selective angiography of the superior mesenteric artery. Magnetic resonance angiography and CT angiography are emerging tools, but angiography is still the preferred modality. Patients are treated with surgical revascularization because of the risks of bowel infarction and malnutrition. Question 12. How does an acute bowel infarction present? Classically, a patient with a history of extensive atherosclerosis, multiple atherosclerosis risk factors, or atrial fibrillation presents with abdominal pain or tenderness. The classic presentation is pain out of proportion to the exam. They also have bloody diarrhea and possibly peritoneal signs such as rebound tenderness and guarding. Watch for thumbprinting, the thickened bowel walls that resemble thumbprints on abdominal radiographs. Patients may also have tachycardia, hypotension, and or shock. Question 13. What causes arteriovenous fistulas and pseudoaneurysms in the extremities? How do you recognize them? Penetrating trauma in an extremity or iatrogenic catheter damage may be followed by the development of an arteriovenous fistula or pseudoaneurysm. Watch for bruies over the area or a palpable pulsatile mass. Small fistulas can be left alone, but other patients require surgical or angiographic intervention. Question 14. What are the signs and symptoms of venous insufficiency? How is it treated? Venous insufficiency generally occurs in the lower extremities. Patients may have a history of deep venous thrombosis, varicose veins, and or swelling in the extremity with pain, fatigability, or heaviness. Symptoms are relieved by elevating the extremity. Patients may also have increased skin pigmentation around the ankles with possible skin breakdown and ulceration. Treatment is at first conservative, including elastic compression stockings, elevation with minimal standing, and treatment of ulcers with cleaning, wet-to-dry dressings, and antibiotics if cellulitis occurs. Question 15. True or false? A superficial palpable cord is a fairly specific sign of deep venous thrombosis. False. A superficial palpable cord usually represents superficial thrombophlebitis. Question 16. Describe the usual history of a patient with superficial thrombophlebitis. How is it treated? Patients often have a history of varicose veins and present with localized leg pain with superficial cord-like induration, reddish discoloration, and mild fever. Superficial thrombophlebitis is not a significant risk factor for pulmonary embolus, and patients typically do not need anticoagulation. Treatment is usually conservative, including NSAIDs and warm compresses. The condition generally subsides on its own within a few days. 
A thrombectomy under local anesthesia can be done for severe or non-resolving symptoms. Question 17. Define subclavian steel syndrome. What symptoms does it cause? How is it treated? Subclavian steel syndrome is usually due to left subclavian artery obstruction proximal to the vertebral artery origin. To perfuse an exercising arm, blood is stolen from the vertebrobasilar system. That is, it flows backward into the distal subclavian artery instead of forward into the brainstem. Patients present with central nervous system symptoms such as syncope, vertigo, confusion, ataxia, and dysarthria. They also have upper extremity claudication during exercise. Treat with surgical bypass. Question 18. What are the symptoms of thoracic outlet obstruction? How is it treated? Thoracic outlet obstruction refers to symptoms caused by obstruction of the nerves or blood vessels that serve the arm as the neurovascular bundle passes from the thoracocervical region to the axilla. Affected patients have upper extremity paresthesias, weakness, cold temperature, edema, and or venous distension. The absence of central nervous system symptoms helps to differentiate this condition from subclavian steel syndrome. Causes include cervical ribs, which are ribs arising from a cervical vertebrae that are usually asymptomatic but may compromise subclavian blood flow, or muscular hypertrophy, classically in young male weightlifters. Treat with surgical intervention, for example, cervical rib resection. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at insidetheboards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets.